Welcome to Saints and Sisters, a conversational podcast between sisters about faith, moral compass, and the role that God plays in our lives. Follow along as we explore these themes through the discussions of books, literature, and scripture with current events as our guideposts. This is episode one of season two. This season, we're taking a little bit of a shift. We're down to two sisters, but we've actually invited a third sister as our guest today, our Aunt Tam, who is an actual sister. And so we're going to let her introduce herself. My name is Sister Elizabeth Ann Swartz. I'm a school sister of Notre Dame. I was born and raised in Southern Maryland. I'm the third of eight children and the oldest girl. In September of 1962, I entered the school sisters of Notre Dame in Baltimore, Maryland. I was professed in July of 1964. I began my ministry in education, teaching first grade. My ministry has spanned the last 51 years. I've been a classroom teacher, principal, associate superintendent, and superintendent. I served as superintendent for two dioceses for the last 20 years. I am now uh, retired from formal education, but volunteer in different areas. I've also coached girls basketball and softball, been school librarian in addition to the many teaching experiences while teaching full-time. I've served on numerous school and diocesan committees over the years and was presented the Learn, Lead, and Proclaim Award from the NCEA in 2015 at their annual convention. I was one of the first two superintendents to receive this award. I have ministered in Maryland, DC, Arizona, and Texas. I graduated with a BA in education from the College of Notre Dame of Maryland in Baltimore, now Notre Dame of Maryland University, and a master's in teaching from Trinity College, now Trinity University in Washington, DC. I did further postgraduate work at Texas Women's University in Dallas for my certification as principal, and I have traveled to several countries worldwide on pilgrimages and cultural experiences. I have been to Italy, Germany, Austria, Turkey, Israel, France, Portugal, Spain, Honduras, and Japan. All these experiences have shaped me into who I am today. Wow, so um, not just sitting in a convent and praying in silence all day. (laughs) No. (laughs) So I think that was one thing that we learned recently, just there's a difference between nuns and sisters. Like I thought that nun was an all-encompassing term for all women who had entered that realm of the religion. And I didn't understand that nuns are cloistered and sisters kind of work among the people. Right. I thought that was pretty fascinating. When Sherry and I were talking about how we just still both continue to kind of struggle, especially with more and more that's happening within the church that just feels ugly. We were just struggling with like, how can we find something that's grounding us to it that we can still be true to our own moral and social justice views, but also have a place in the church. And so we we're both like light bulb, <laughs> we should be talking to Aunt Tam. I feel like your work at the border with immigrants has been particularly inspirational lately. And so we just wanted to kind of go through some questions that we have for you about your, I mean, cause this has been the bulk of your lifetime at this point that you've dedicated to the church, but also to a lot of social justice and good works. So I guess just from the very beginning, like, was there something a defining time or a moment in your life that made you decide to become a sister? When I was uh, small, we used to have summer vacation school in the parish where I lived. And it was about five miles from where I actually lived. And the school sisters would come there during the summer and teach us catechism. And 
I attended those for a number of years. And in the last two years of high school, I uh, wanted to go to a Catholic high school to be better prepared to go to college and attended our, the Academy of Our Lady in Washington, DC. And it was also run by the School Sisters of Notre Dame. And it was during my high school years, one of the sisters invited me to consider, you know, she thought I had a vocation and to pray about it. And I did. And uh, so I decided then to enter the School Sisters uh, when I graduated from high school. So you enter, So when you went to the School Sisters of Notre Dame, you were considered entering the process to become a sister while you were also going to college then? Yes. Okay. I didn't Actually, realize that. They, they had college classes at the uh, center of so many of us. There were 50 of us postulants. And so they had the professors come to the mother house, which was just down the street from the uh, college. College is at 4,700 and we were at 6,400 North Charles Street in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So uh, they would come down and then they would teach us. It wasn't a, not quite a full college load, but close to it. And then when I, we were in the Vichet, we could take uh, two classes. So we had one on scripture and one on child psychology. And then and junior sister, then we went to full-time uh, college, then finished up during the summers and school year. So you were learning about the church at the same time that you were studying to for the education degree, right? Right. And that was a time during Vatican II when all the changes in the church came about. <laughs> so I entered one community in the sense of uh, the rule they had at the time I entered was different from the rule that I was, I, when I was professed as a final, my final vows was a different, had, the rule had changed and for the better. So I lived during that whole change of Vatican II from you know, Latin in the church to English, making that transition. And then also the uh, understanding of what, you know, people still say, <clears throat> I go to CCD and the CCD was the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. And basically, it was used was what they call the Baltimore Catechism. In the history of the church, a catechism was developed by the church in the United States, and Baltimore was the first see, meaning the first diocese in this country. And so it's, it's still the oldest uh, see in the United States. And so it was called the Baltimore Catechism. Actually, its origins were in South Carolina. So it was a series of questions and answers, you know, who made me, God made me, why did God make you? And then you memorize those. Now that's different from religious formation that children should have where they also learn doctrine, but also how do you live this out? That, <clears throat> that's the, um, the difference between CCD and religious formation. And so when people that's say- That's interesting. Yeah, we, we took CCD growing up. You should like kind of cringe because you want your child to learn more than just questions and answers without understanding, you know, in depth, uh, or a little bit more in depth, what, to the extent that they can, what that means. And so in the religious formation it is taking the child and not only teaching them, you know, the, the prayers of the church and uh, the rubrics of the mass and things like this and why we do this or that, but also then to practice it. Yeah. So what do you feel like were the biggest changes in Vatican II as far as just daily practice? Well, I think that uh, before, People went to mass and it was in Latin. Now the, the church, Latin was set as the universal language of the church at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. And so for 400 years, the church's rubrics for mass did not change at all. It was set by the Council of Trent. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think that the way they had mass when they were growing up, Latin mass, 
was what Jesus had from the first century, which is not true. There was a lot of fluctuation in, uh, in how the church did it according to the different cultures and places where people were. Uh, Pope John XXIII uh, is the one who called the Second Vatican Council and to, in essence, open the doors and the windows of the church to renew the church. And so one of the things was that people should understand the liturgy and they should hear it in their own language. And so mm -hmm. uh, they got busy then translating from the original Latin and everything in the Vatican is done in Latin. Okay, all documents the Pope proclaims, it's all done in Latin. Then you have official translators, people who are trained professionally to be able to translate, not only when you go from one language to another, you know, you, a joke about something's lost in translation. Well, sometimes <laughs> you can lose things in translation. So they have people who are, whose whole life is spent translating these documents into the native language. So it's correct theology, something isn't lost in translation. And so you have official translators who do that. So the mass then was written in the language. So the priest proclaimed uh, or celebrate the Eucharist in the language of the people. And that's why if you go to Germany, you'll hear it in German or Japan, it's in Japanese. And on many of these countries, if you go to them, they're, they're tourists, they will have worship aids in their language that you can follow along in your language while the priest is celebrating mm -hmm. in the language of the people. So that's probably one of the biggest things was a lot of times you would see people praying the rosary during mass. Well, it's because they didn't understand Latin. Oh, that's interesting. So, they were just participating however they could. Yes. And so you had missiles uh, that you could follow, you know, in Latin. But if you didn't read Latin, it wasn't too much, too helpful necessarily. And there were certain parts that the, the people did sing. Uh, the Gregorian chant was the, usually the, the music was written in Gregorian chant. With Vatican II also was more songs though in your own language. Now those are really supposed to be the ones used at liturgy should be in, uh, based in scripture. Mm -hmm. And so that's why uh, you really shouldn't be, you know, for some people's weddings, they want song that's, a, that's their favorite. But that's really not supposed to be part of the liturgy. <laughs> if it's just their favorite song is not based in scripture. Uh, there are other songs that are, are more appropriate. So the biggest change I think was, was that. And also uh, he called religious congregations to update their constitutions and their rules, which is what we did. And so the, the religious garb that our sisters wore up until uh, Vatican II was the common clothing worn at the time of our foundation of our congregation, you know, the long dresses and the veils. I remember the pictures of you. Yes. <laughs> and so we, uh, the dress of the people was more, you know, suits and, and uh, dresses versus and knee length versus the full length habit. People feel more comfortable with people sometimes uh, they're not wearing this full habit. Sometimes people are intimidated by it or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. uh, yeah. you know, seeing people is unapproachable because you're up there versus uh, among the people type of thing. So we re redid our constitution and our, it took us a number of years to finalize it, but it was finally approved by Rome. Some of the, the changes where we used to have periods of silence almost all day, uh, very little time really to talk with you, the little silence or the great silence. Our prayer then became the, you know, the language that we were in, whether it was German or English, because we are an international congregation. We also then uh, broadened our, what we considered education, formal education as the actual teaching, but then also we branched out into religious formation, 
So we had some sisters who are nurses, very few, because we're really a teaching order. There were orders of sisters who did nothing but were nurses and doctors. Mm -hmm. And so uh, not everyone has taken easily to changing over. Some habits die hard. And uh, Pardon the pun. Yes. <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a whole uh, difference. I think if you embrace Vatican II, it was to renew the church, to make it more accessible and I want to say people-friendly, reaching out and uh, and to, you know, the call to Vatican II to, to you know, be more accessible to people. And I think that, uh, you know, that was one of the bigger changes in the church. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about um, how, like, the religious garb can sometimes be well, it often is intimidating, whether it's, you know, the collar or the habit. What would you say is one of the biggest misconceptions about being a sister that you've encountered or that you wish people knew otherwise? Well, I think that, I think the, the biggest thing is that uh, sisters are people. You know, we make mistakes. We learn from them. Uh, we're not superhuman. We're not saints. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You, you strive to be more saintly, you know, in your actions and all, but you're not saints. And sometimes people think, well, they're better than I am because they're religious. And that's not the case. There are many fine lay people who are just as holy as religious are, in some cases, maybe more so. <laughs> but uh, no, I think the biggest misconception is that uh, you have to be holy to, to be a sister, uh, that, uh, you know, you don't make mistakes and uh, this type of thing. And I think that's the, the, the biggest thing that people see. Mm -hmm. What do you think have been some of your biggest like tests of faith or issues that made you question the church's teachings? I think some of the, uh, you know, when you talk about social justice, I remember one of the, uh, Father Byron, who was a Jesuit, said that probably the words that Jesus most regretted ever saying is the poor will always be with us. And people use that as an excuse to uh, have poor people, that people, the poor exist because they're wanting to be poor, uh, not because of circumstances and that. And I think that uh, there is always uh, within that, it's not that question, the teachings of the church on that regard, but I think the understanding that some people have of the church and what we're called to. Again, it goes back to, I think some of the formation is that you had the 10 commandments and everything was, uh, you know, thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not, as someone said, is to keep the Ten Commandments, but to live the Beatitudes. And living the Beatitudes is much more difficult, because you're supposed to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison. And I think that a lot of people in, in the church don't understand that call to, to live the Beatitudes. And I think that's one of the challenges today, when you face issues like immigration, you know, people they want to label people and classify people and not see people as as individuals. So I think that that struggle, the uh, church and our history here in America is, and even in other parts of the world has not always been, I want to say, user-friendly. You know, the segregation in America, I think that the church did reach out. But as soon as uh, that was changed, we changed immediately. Even it wasn't the most popular thing to do, you know, to integrate our schools. We did it. It. And then we told people if they had problems with it, they would have to go then to another school, but we would integrate. So I think that, uh, you know, in some ways the living out the Beatitudes is one of the struggles within the church. How do you do that? How do you accomplish that? Because not everyone is on the same page or feels the same way other people do. One of the things that I 
struggle with sometimes, and I think this is true with most organized religions, is the idea of the distribution of wealth. And, you know, I have this perception that the church, big C, you know, Vatican, and, you know, that there's just so much wealth. And then you see such disparity um, and such poverty in, you know, even among the parishes. But, I mean, how have you reconciled or, or are there things that we maybe that's a perception, but we don't truly understand like how that works as far as, you know, how, how is the wealth distributed and, and how do you feel about that? Or how do you work with that? I think, you know, when you look at the wealth within the church, a lot of people think the Vatican is rich. It's rich in some ways because of its holdings of the artwork, mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> things like that, that are priceless. You know, how do you put a, a, a price on the Pieta since it's in the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica? I mean, it has value, but it's not liquid assets. Mm -hmm. uh, the church does do outreach through different organizations within the church. Peter's Pence is one of the things as an annual collection during uh, Holy Week, where all the churches in the world take up a collection and is given to the Holy Father to advance, you know, to help countries that do suffer from earthquakes or disasters or humanitarian crisis. So he has that money at his disposal to give out to countries in need. I think uh, things like Catholic Relief Services is one of the biggest organizations that goes worldwide in response to uh, humanitarian crises. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, in the parish structure, you know, uh, each parish is kind of self-sufficient and it's probably, I don't know what it will take to change that parish structure. I know many bishops will call the uh, more affluent parishes to sister a parish that is uh, not as affluent. You know, here in El Paso, I know that some parishes will pay the insurance for employees or the priests in some of our poor parishes. If you're in a parish that's uh, got a lot of doctors, managers, then they have the wherewithal to to give more. So their weekly collection may be twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars. But then if you're in a poor rural parish or even an inner city parish, your annual, your monthly collection or your weekly collection may be like $900. Mm -hmm. well, how do you turn on the lights on that? But yet you still have an obligation to provide for the people as far as their spiritual enrichment, you know, mm -hmm. be able to attend mass close to home and things like that. So I think that uh, many bishops do call the uh, more affluent parishes to, to give and support other parishes probably not to the extent that they need to and i think it's probably one of the things where people uh, parishes that have money spend a lot of money on their churches and then bigger and better facilities uh, for meetings and things like this where the parish is trying to put a roof over their head type of thing yeah it's probably one of the more difficult things to deal with within but it's part of the structure of the church not how you tackle that would be a major problem yeah major issue with that. And the same thing is true with some of the, um, uh, even dioceses in this country. You have, there's a group that reaches out to poorer dioceses in this country and it gives them money collected from other dioceses in a nationwide collection. So like there are places like Arizona, Texas, uh, Kentucky, Appalachian area where people are very poor that wouldn't be able to even support a parish priest. Catholic Extension Society is the group. Then it reaches out through their annual collections and helps support these uh, parishes, distribute wealth more evenly across that. Mm -hmm. and you go back to the early days of the church and a lot of Paul's writings was that you uh, give your 
wealth and spread it according to those in need. Somehow or another, we lost some of that uh, in our history. So mm-hmm. it's still a challenge today. So you went from being a teacher to up through your education career, you ended being a superintendent of multiple schools in Texas, and then you retired. And now since you've retired, you've been still doing a lot of work. So what do you think are some of the things that you've been the most proud of? Well, I think that uh, because of being superintendent in the diocese and even other places in the country, I know you can network and connect. I think women uh, do a much better job of connecting and networking. Part of our nature, I think, to help to mentor others along the way. Open and readily will support another woman in that. And I, here in El Paso, I've gotten to know people. So when there was a need for clothing or baby clothes or diapers or things like that to help others, and uh, they've been very generous in doing so. So I think that, uh, you know, having connections to people that you know are willing to share and to call others to that. And sometimes even people are called to share is, you know, why are you doing this? Not to get a free homework pass because you brought in a pack of diapers. (laughs) It's our call to do that. Another time we probably go over the seven uh, steps with giving. The first step is you give so that you get something back. You feel good about it. The ultimate is to get to the point where you give because it's what you're called to do, who you are. How can I help? You can call people to, I want to say to their better selves, you know, and so you you challenge people. I mean, you can do it nicely, but you can challenge people to think about why are they giving? But our country, I think, has this, uh, you know, Horatio Alger syndrome with uh, hard work and a little bit of luck, you're going to make it. And those were the back in the later part of the 1800s, Carnegie's and the Rockefellers of this world. A little bit of luck and hard work, you're going to make it in America, which is a, is not true. The opportunities have to be there also for you to take advantage of. That narrative process. seems like it's just gotten even louder over the last decade, certainly. I mean, you could argue that it's always been there, but it seems just right now that it's never been stronger narrative. Does it ever, I mean, what do you do in those situations, you know, like Sarah mentioned at the beginning, your work at the border and helping um, families and those who have nothing. I mean, do you ever feel discouraged or do you always have, do you just keep doing the work? Like what keeps you going? You know, like with the uh, people coming in initially, they were from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, what they call the triangle countries. I had the privilege to be a part of a group that went down to Honduras in the uh, late 80s. Mm-hmm. and saw firsthand, you know, the poverty. You know, you were not free to move about the country. You have to have permission uh, to leave, even when as visitors, you know, on a visa going in as tourists, we had to have permissions to travel from one city to another. You just couldn't just get in your car and go drive across the country. It doesn't work that way. People are very uh, controlled. You know, people would walk 10 miles, you know, to get to a clinic and then the doctor had his 50 patients for the day. He'd already seen them but before you got there. And so then you could wait overnight and maybe be first in line or one of the first in line the next day to get medical care. These are some of the things you see, you know, when you, and you see how the government functions and works in some of these countries. And our sisters certainly were in areas where you didn't travel at night because of the soldiers and the uh, others. Uh, moving about. So you did not want to be on a bus at night or anything. So when they, you see people coming through, I knew a few words in Spanish. Um, and so uh, able to help, even if it's one person, uh, it's one, you know, it's that thing with the starfish, you can throw one back at a time, but there, yeah, there are 10,000 others on the beach, but you make the difference in that one life. 
And so uh, I did that. Um, it was interesting toward the end, uh, before they put the clamps down and really uh, the Trump administration with people coming in, where they were letting in like six, seven, eight, nine hundred a day, help them to uh, you know get a shower, get a, a good hot meal, you know, get a change of clothes, basic toiletries that they haven't had in weeks of their journey. Being able to do that, it, some of them, their uh, suitcases, all their possessions were taken from them when they were put in detention. So to claim them, they had to go back to the bridge they crossed and claim them. And if they didn't claim them, I think they would hold them for 60 days or something, then they were destroyed. Well, you know, it's a hassle to drive downtown El Paso. We found out that the one bridge, after waiting for an hour and a line one night for the bridge, the traffic to get over the bridge to the uh, area where you could go in and claim their luggage where they were told they could go and get it, it wasn't there. So they sent us to another bridge and so eventually uh, I met one of the uh, people in that uh, division, went in and see if they go back inside the building where they came out of, they can't come back out because they will put them back in detention and have to go back through the process again. So <laughs> we went in and took their papers in and said they're outside waiting. And, and then they helped us, you know, to, to find their things. But people were so happy to get back their backpacks with their clothes. In some cases, it was the documents they needed to prove why they were asking for asylum, because they have to have proof. Why are you claiming asylum? They had to have that. And also like the, the children, if they had birth certificates or anything like that, documentation that it was their child and, you know, applying for asylum for them as well as uh, for the parents. So, you know, to help someone like that who didn't have the resources, they don't understand the language, you know, take people to the airport, show them the counter, ticket counter with them to get their boarding passes, take them to the right to security and wait there. Border Patrol has to come over and clear them to go through the security. They can't go through the rest of security with everybody else because of the documentation, the papers they have, because their passports were taken from them. So all they have are these papers issued by our government, which has their name on it and uh, their picture. They have to show that. And then they're uh, they verify that before they let them through the security to get onto their plane and on buses, you know, take them to the bus station, make sure they understand that if they're going to Dallas, there are four or five stops before you get to Dallas. Don't get off the bus and try to find another one to stay on until you get to Dallas. And how to find, look, because I have traveled to other countries, uh, you know, you go to Italy and all of a sudden Vienna is Vien, W-E-I-N. And it's like, how do, you, uh, how do you do that? You know, that whole process, you know, was at the mercy of people who spoke Italian when I didn't speak Italian or German or Austrian or Turkish, you know. Uh, so it's, you have some empathy then for people who can't read the, the uh, signs. And you know, the, even <laughs> my own sister, when she travels, it's like how to find the gates and navigate airports, you know. And the first few We're laughing because we know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, and that's a person who speaks English. This is their, their home and they have trouble navigating an airport. Can you imagine then if you don't speak the language and the people you're talking to don't speak the language that you're, you speak, problems you encounter. So I think some of it is developing an empathy for people, putting, being able to put yourself in their place. Would you want them, if this is your mother or sister or something, help them out? You certainly would. So you do what you can to help people 
in the process of uh, settling in this country. No, not everyone is going to welcome them with open arms. And I've met people at the airport where I ask, are you going to such and such? Well, they're obviously flying to say Atlanta or Delta, but are you changing planes in Atlanta? If yes or no, would you, would you see that this person got to that gate? Because these are huge airports that most Americans can't navigate. You know, mm-hmm. when you go to Dallas-Fort Worth, there's four terminals, A, B, C, D. You have to take a tram to get to, you know, whichever one you're going to. It's this wall that opens up, you know, sliding glass doors. It's not an entry, but it's the entry to the tram. You know, someone tells you that. But otherwise, you're just walking around looking, you know. So I think that uh, my experiences with uh, having been in different countries and makes me more empathetic to people who who are coming to this country. It's really brave what you do. I mean, whether it's going to their countries or even just your work at the border or even some people won't even approach another person. I mean, where did you, where'd you get your bravery? I mean, we know your mother, Harriet, was certainly not scared of much. What do you attribute well, I think that? that? I think that uh, you learn education as your great equalizer in the sense of if you're educated, you can learn about other things and you can read, you know, you find out that, you know, there is goodness in people. Very few people will tell you no. Uh, if you approach them and just ask, you know, can you help this person? Would you see that they, the humanity and other people will come out? Uh, very few will not. Fortunately, we have a lot of Karens and I call them Kevins, you know, that so feel so entitled and realize that they, the, their own parents were immigrants to this country. They're not indigenous then they came over on a boat or somehow to this country, you know, or whether they came as indentured servants to Maryland and, or came as free people, you know, they're all immigrants, depending on how many generations you want to go back. You no, know, but uh, people forget that, you know, uh, yes, going to the border and uh, trying to re- get someone's luggage the first time, it was like you're told to go. And then there's only one line to get into. And that has a line of people waiting and so you wait there for 45 minutes before they call you. And then you get there and they tell you, well, you're at the wrong place or the wrong line, or you need to talk to somebody else and uh, wait here and they'll be with you. And they wait another 45 minutes, but you have the tenacity to wait. The person's good enough to tell you that don't bring the people in into this building because we had to go out and around and come in the back way. We couldn't go in the outdoor. We had to go all the way around turnstiles so once you get out you can't come back in once you're on that side you're stuck on that side and so you have to come back through uh, u.s customs coming back in so you know then you you know you follow their instructions and you know to get to help the people that you're, you know you're with you're trying to help so i guess the like base of jerry and i starting this conversation has just been is it even possible for us to feel the way we do about certain social justice and or just humanity issues and be catholic And so do you have any advice or things that we could focus on that would make us feel like we're part of the church while still holding traditional political social justice convictions? I think so. I think that, uh, you know, the church goes back to organized labor at Pope Leo at the end of the 1800s, the rights of workers. You've ever read his encyclical on the rights of workers, but I think that uh, that is the basis for many of the uh, churches stand, you know, on organized labor, the whole purpose of Labor Day and the dignity of work, the church's social teachings. What's the official church's teachings on social justice issues? If you want, I can send some of that to you, where you can read it. Certainly, I mean, you talk about liberals, conservatives, uh, ultra-liberals, moderates, and all within any societal structure, and certainly within the church. And some of them, fortunately, don't don't read with the church. Uh, Some of them think they're more Catholic than the Pope. And so 
uh, when you read the documents of, uh, especially Francis, Pope Francis in more recent times, he has spoken out on the human rights and things like this. So I think some of his his letters, uh, different letters, uh, certainly offer a more compassionate church. Fortunately, there's still some who uh, tend to be more conservative and think the church is going too far in some of this. Reading the life of uh, Oscar Romero, you know, when he was elected as a bishop of uh, San Salvador, and his conversion came when uh, this woman had come to him and uh, wanted her daughter baptized. And he said that, you know, he would be baptizing on on a certain day with, well, no, she didn't want her daughter mixed in with those, the poor peasants. And he said, no, this is how he does it. And that uh, family kind of turned against him after that because he was not for the privilege to give them special treatment. He went to uh, one of the girls, young women, I think, had presented her child for baptism. Uh, he was called to go out to, I think it was last rites or something, and found her body on a dump. You know, the body had just been dumped on a dump in San Salvador. And so that was his conversion to social justice. So I think that, you know, there's times when people are have conversions, if you will. And I think that certainly the church calls us, uh, like with, uh, I know Sherry helps a Catholic worker, but people who give a year or two years or more time to Catholic worker, where you're not going to be, certainly you're not going to get rich working for a Catholic worker. Anyone who works, say, for Annunciation House here in El Paso is is not going to get rich because all the money goes to help immigrants and uh, you know refugees uh, help them to settle here in this country to get where they're going. So I think that starting with, uh, if you want, dignity of, of work with Pope Leo and then uh, the other social teachings of the church, all these things call us to, to share what we have, share our resources. We're not supposed to hoard them, you know, for ourselves, amass wealth, but to goes back to the scripture, to those who have given much, much is expected. You know, so if you've been given much, then you should be sharing much. And I'm not just saying, oh, I, God's blessed me, so I have all this, uh, I have a real nice house, and I can afford this and that, and vacations, and all that. In the meantime, two blocks over is a family who, who can't put food on the table, and the church is calling us to help those who need it, you know. And so we have things like food banks and shelters and that that we can donate to and help out directly or indirectly with the resources we have. You know, in many cases, I know several doctors here in El Paso who volunteer their time at clinics for the people who can't afford to see a doctor. And so I think it's, it's things like that, that, you know, we're, we're called to do it. It's like, how much of the call people pay attention to. I think certainly, uh, you know, what the church says officially, he said the social teachings of the church and wrote the encyclicals, it certainly is a guideline and a, a path to follow. You know, there are people who will keep the commandments, they'll go to church on Sunday, they'll tithe to the church, but they think then that's all they have to do, but they've done their duty. And the church calls us to more than that if they want to listen. And do you think then, so, I mean, sometimes, I mean, Sarah and I have talked about this that feeling of, gosh, if I'm pro-choice or consider myself, you know, an ally for the LGBT community, and then if you're sitting in church, like you feel hypocritical, I mean, how do you reconcile? Is it just go back to like what you said? I mean, just standing, you know, the true mission of the church, or I mean, how do you reconcile that? I mean, we were talking the other day about the Texas, the new Texas law, you and I, and you know, it seemed like, like you said, you're not pro-abortion, but you don't think that law is just. I mean, how do you reconcile that? It's so draconian that uh, we're put a bounty. I mean, if you talk about the dignity of the person, how can you put a bounty on a person? How can you encourage people to go out and to deliberately, like I said, I am not for abortion, but you, how do you justify just hounding people for profit? The first case here, I don't know if you've been following that follow-up, there was a doctor in San Antonio who 
performed an abortion. And then there's a guy who is in prison who is who who wants a ten thousand dollar bounty. So he's turning in that doctor. You know, I mean, that's going to be the test case with some of this. Uh, how do you justify that type of thing that uh, is so draconian in its approach? At the same time, as you're talking about uh, pro-life uh, in Texas, did Texas ranks among the the last one of, some of the last states as far as education goes? Is is among the last uh, as far as uh, children who need medical care? Texas would not uh, expand the, the number of children on Medicaid because it doesn't want the government involved, the federal government, i.e. And so there are many children in Texas who do not get adequate medical care because the state refuses to expand Medicaid for children. They wanted to cut back on the food stamp program. You know, it's, it's all these things that, I want to say pro-life, that, that the people who say they're pro-life are against. It's like they're pro-birth and not pro-life. Because if you're pro-life, then you're for seeing that people have adequate medical care, adequate food. You know, why are people starving to death in, in Texas? Why are kids malnourished? You know, the dropout rate is so high because they're poor. They need to get a job when they're 15, 16, or they're just so discouraged from the system because they have not had proper nutrition and things like this to, to finish their education and to move on out of, of that situation. So, you know, we're putting money right now. The governor is bragging he's spending how many millions of dollars on protecting the border. The truth is that anyone crossing the border, don't they don't stay in Texas. Very few may stay in Texas. The vast majority are, it's like right through Texas. As soon as they can get in and get out, they're out. They're going to other places in the country. They're not. And then he refuses to a mandate mask wearing. As a matter of fact, he blocks school districts from mandating that kids wear masks in school. So how can you say you're pro-life when you're exposing thousands of children uh, under the age of 12? Because sometimes we don't know what the final result of the COVID-19 is on the system. So it's like, why would you expose children to even possible death? And the uh, rate here in Texas is horrendous as far as how many children have been hospitalized. And yet they don't squawk when you get on, you go through the security on the airport, fasten your seatbelt when you get in the car, you know, you get vaccinated, you know, the whole slew of vaccinations. But uh, we've we've gotten so politicized with this COVID-19 that uh, we are thinking that it's the government trying to control our lives. Yeah. Aside from the phone we're carrying around. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really draconian. And then it's like, well, how do you justify this? Is this what Jesus would do if they came along? What are we called to do? Be people of compassion. We still have the death penalty in Texas, you know, and some people have been wrongly put to death because of discrimination and you know, the whole justice system. We had started on that one. But, yeah. uh, you, know, it's a, you know, when you look at it, I think there are so many issues. I think you pick one and, you know, do what you can to alleviate that. I think that, you know, the, what the church actually says and what people say the church says sometimes are two different things. Do you think there's room to kind of hold that tension at times? Like maybe, you know, all of my social views or political views may not align with the church, but I, I could still be welcomed into the community. So we, you know, feel like a participating member. It used to be with the parishes that you uh, were to attend the parish within the parish boundaries where you live. And I think after Vatican II, it's more where do you feel at home and if it's a parish on the other side of town I've been join that one versus the one that's you know a mile from me or something uh if it's depending upon who the pastor is and their outlook yeah. on things all of the parishes in my town are very conservative so <laughs> <laughs> maybe okay. they're quite as conservative as the others and you know and some of it is a matter of you know sitting down having a conversation even people within the parish you know why do they think the way they do because i find uh 
what's kind of amazing is I, the people my age that were raised in Vatican II, pre-Vatican, some of them are still holding on to the old, the Latin churches. And uh, today you see people who are much younger who never lived a day under pre-Vatican church embracing these ways and wanting to go back to the Latin mass. It's, they've never in their life had the Latin mass. You know, <laughs> so why, why is this push to revert back to, you know, it's the whole thing I think of change. You know, what is the church calling us to? So if you really look at some of the documents in the in the Second Vatican Council, you know, sometimes they can be kind of dry. But, you know, what does the church really, really teach? So that could be our homework. That could be your homework. Yeah, I've taken lots of notes there, and I'll have to ponder a lot of these things, and we'll probably have follow-up questions. And uh, If you want to, like, you know, Bishop John Stowe, the Be Bishop of Lexington, Kentucky. So if you go on Google and put Lexington. You Kentucky, say John Snow? John Stowe, S-T-O-W. Oh, Stowe. So. Dang it. I thought it was like the Game of, the Thrones. Game of Thrones guy. John Snow. <laughs> no, okay. to, John Stowe. And uh, this is still on there. He, he sent a letter to the people of Lexington, the Catholic community in Lexington, saying you can't be Catholic and be MAGA. Really? So, yes. How'd that uh, go over in Lexington, Kentucky? Well, you can imagine. <laughs> as well with go over to some other places yet yeah, read what he says because what he says makes sense you know and i think that he also usually does the uh labor day mass being broadcast and he he gives the homily rights of workers and things like this but his thing on uh why you can't be catholic and be maga is very good because he wrote that after that incident and in, uh it was, it was kids from kentucky <laughs> They weren't from his diocese, but they were there. It was the Catholic Heisens, and they were in the face of the Native American. Yeah. And it's a very good read. It takes some solace in the fact that, you know, how can you support one thing and then say you're Christian or whatever, mm -hmm. in this case, Catholic. At the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, he said, for this president to call himself pro-life and for anybody to back him because of his claims of being pro-life is almost willful ignorance. He's so much anti-life because he is only concerned about himself, and he gives us every, every, every indication of that. That's only the U.S. bishops, but then read the one to the people of Lexington. Well, thank you for all your time today. All right. Okay, so we will see you next time. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Love Bye. you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.